a thing <laughs> happened. Okay, it's it's going to be okay, but we lost a lot of money. Founders really need to be very dialed into what metrics make them the most money. I'm not I'm not convinced it's worth 300 bucks yet. Somebody gives them crappy terms, they can they can go they can go to somebody else. They can wait it out. I, like it literally said, I think I survived the the big layoff. I hope they're still listening. Hey guys, welcome back to the Results Junkies podcast. We've got a pretty full plate today. Uh, we talked a little bit last week that we were going to tee up the delivery company, third-party delivery companies, DoorDash, Uber Eats, and, um, uh, and Grubhub's parent for, uh, for some discussion since they were reporting earnings. We've got, uh, we got a question from a listener on uh, Paul's new project, Beacons, and then sort of two things that we're going to try and tie together. One was uh, an announcement by YC, Y Combinator, that they're reducing the number of companies in their next cohort. And uh, and also some soft bank information. The, um, and not that we haven't seen some of those sort of like slow rolling train wreck that is SoftBank um, right now, but I think it's I think it's relevant to this YC discussion. So, Paul, we got a lot to cover this week, man. A lot. You know, it's uh, well, I I think I think this is just a subset of everything that's going on out there, and I think um, I don't know. It'll be fun to talk about because I uh, I've been heads down in code this week, and uh, it's nice to talk to another human. <laughs> <laughs> that's not my family <laughs> <laughs> yeah we will we will we'll, we'll tell dana to fast forward past that part <laughs> i was gonna say yeah don't get me in trouble here guys um you've had a quite the interesting week it sounds like uh, i don't know how much you want to share but uh man i i am yeah. not envying you right now <laughs> yeah we're sort of on like the rolling covid delays um and it's interesting i think um so like we talked a few episodes about ago you asked me about the aura ring and uh, i think there's a, a, a decent tie in there as a follow-up um so short version of the story um and you know i mentioned to paul it just full disclosure on my other podcast miles to go whenever we bring up covid we sort of get like you know negative ratings from people and people saying that we're you know whatever um so so bring it on um but you know, specifically here, um, my my daughter tested positive first, um, going back over two weeks ago. Uh, then six days later, my son tested positive, um, and then six days after he tested positive, my wife tested positive. And the interesting thing was, like, we quarantined our daughter, but we kept um, my son and my wife Michelle and I were all you know pretty much in close proximity. So in in theory while he was shedding virus, like she and I should have been absorbing the same amount of, of virus. She is vaccinated, boosted, all that. Got boosted a few weeks ago. I had COVID, um, if you'll remember, at the beginning of June. What's interesting with the Aura Ring tie-in, and I sent you these in pre-show, um, one of the things that the Aura Ring tracks is your body temperature. It's actually how they expanded pretty rapidly in COVID was because they, they were able to sign up the pro sports leagues with contracts for the players to wear them. Um, so they had early indications of COVID. And she her chart has shown elevated body temperature every day for the past four or five days and she's felt sort of off and at the same time my body temperature chart has actually shown a slight decrease in body temperature um you know this is not scientific in any way shape or form but i think there's two interesting things there for our current strain like the amount of time between positive tests in our family and the fact that there's this body temperature correlation that was very much there when i tested positive back in june for covid and is there for michelle on her ring um that's just like 
insane information that we never had before. Yeah, it is. It is interesting. I mean, I you I I think I got you the the ordering through you. Actually, I got the, the I guess the referral code or whatever. And it, I've only been have, using it for about a week, or I'm sorry, a month now, or six weeks now. And it's been interesting how it sort of it seems to pick up on, you know, like colds and stuff like that, even on, on my end. So uh, I don't know. I it's I'm still getting used to the the idea of wearing a second ring. You know, that's not my wedding band. Uh, um, yeah. But aside from that, this whole quantified self thing and all that, it's just amazing what you can do now. I mean, I'm just looking down at it now and it's just amazing what this little piece of metal can do. Uh, I'm yeah. not, I'm not convinced it's worth 300 bucks yet, but it, it's, uh, it's really, it's pretty cool actually from like a recovery standpoint and all that. Uh, well, I've been doing a lot of running lately. So, um, anyway. I'm sorry to hear that going on on your side though, man. Uh, we actually, <laughs> the, the boys, uh, started getting their COVID, um, what do you call it? The COVID, uh, vaccines here recently. Um, just, it was just a matter of timing, just lining it up with their annual, uh, visits. Yeah. So, uh, so, uh, that, that's been good. And, uh, yeah, I mean, knock on wood, we're, we're just, <laughs> I, I'm not, uh, well, anyway, I'm getting nervous because, uh, school starts in a month for everybody and you know what yeah. happens as a parent, uh, once everybody goes back to school. So, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see, uh, wh- how the kids are all doing a month from now when they're all back in school and, what sort of outbreak we're going to be dealing with at that point. So <laughs> yeah. that's a nervous laugh, by the way. I don't mean to make fun of it or anything like that. <laughs> no, <laughs> so. I think definitely think, definitely think we're in a wave for sure. And, uh, and to your point in the ring, like I- I'm still not sure if it's worth the price either. I think I'm more annoyed by the monthly fee than I am necessarily the ring price. Um, but maybe it's the whole combination of things, but still very valuable information still, you know, um, overall glad I have it. Um, just, you know, Still, still debating it on on price. Um, but for folks who are, are just tuning in, um, you can email us your questions and comments at show at resultsjunkies.com. If you'd like to pitch us on the show, feel free to email us as well. Uh, as we mentioned last week, more information to come soon on some uh, opportunities we're going to have for folks to pitch on the show and get investments from Paul and I. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, uh, a bunch of stuff today and we'll try and zoom through it. He is uh, at Paul Singh on all the social media channels. I am at Pizza In Motion. So let's talk third-party delivery first and foremost, because we talked last week, the lead up to this was that Shopify had laid off a whole bunch of people and that their CEO in a very thoughtful, mindful way had said like, hey, we got it wrong. Um, and and I think it's interesting. I I would say I'm probably a little bit surprised by the reports, um, but and I'll I'll summarize them very high level, and you can pull all the different strings you want to pull on these. But generally speaking, the the big the big three delivery providers, Uber Eats, DoorDash, and Grubhub's parent, are all up in terms of gross booking volume or dollars, if you will. And they all of course sort of rec- recorded a little bit differently. Um, there are a few nuggets I thought were interesting. Uh, first and foremost, obviously we've got inflation, and they're you know a commission based business, so as restaurants raise prices their gross dollars should go up just like the restaurants go up. Um, but the couple of nuggets that I thought were interesting um, and sort of like this, like, hey, what's coming and how should founders plan for it? Um, first off, Uber Eats, and it's sort of a, a reply to a question from uh, an analyst on their on their earnings call, said that for the first month of Q3, so essentially July, their bookings are flat to Q2 of this year. And that's the first time they've ever been flat that I could find. They, they're always up significantly. 
And so um, they're flat in gross bookings, even though they've got inflation and adjusted increased commissions from some contracts. So I think we can safely say that at this point, they're at, at best flat and they're probably down in overall transactions. And some of that is likely due to the COVID overhang going away. And some of it is just due to, you know, inflation and the amount of money people have in their pocket. And the other interesting tidbit is Grubhub's parent noted that their North American volume, this is Canada and U.S. combined, is down significantly, 10% uh, in the first half of the year over the first half of last year. So while the, while the numbers are good now, there does seem to be some trailing off, which sort of goes to some of the conversations you and I had last week. Well, I don't, I mean, well, well two, two thoughts there. First is, uh, I don't know that the numbers are even good now, uh, you know, because so even when you say like it's flat quarter over quarter, you got to also take into account inflation. So mm-hmm. flat is actually down probably. I mean, that's probably what we're talking about here. But but yeah, more, I guess, more, more just saying like the previous quarter was good, but this quarter, oh, yeah. like just yeah. like Procter & Gamble, Procter & Gamble reported good numbers, but said the outlook looks crappy. And I think that's, you know, kind of sort of what the delivery companies are trying not to say. Yeah. I, I mean, look, I, I know I'm just one data point here, but I, I, on a personal note here, this doesn't seem very surprising because I, I feel like no. conspicuous yeah. spending is going down. And, and so what I mean by that is, is that, you know, even in our own family, we, we have, I, I, see, I'm kind of embarrassed to even talk about it because I don't know uh, <laughs> how others feel about this. But look, you know, when I look around the neighborhood, na- we live in a very normal middle class neighborhood, sort of like you and, you know, a lot of the other folks we know. And like, you know, it, 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 we're we're fortunate in the sense that, you know, we've built companies and all that stuff, but it's hard to look around and also see your neighbors kind of worried about whether they got caught up in a layoff or they will or that, you know, that sort of uncertainty. And so I know with our family, we've sort of cut down our conspicuous spending. So there's not as many Amazon boxes on the front door anymore. There's, you know, we used to order in, um, you know, on Uber Eats once a week, uh, Dana and I, and and have a, a, you know, a nice dinner after the kids went to bed. We don't do that anymore. One of us will run out and and grab it if we're going to do it. Um, Again, I know I'm just one data point here, but I think what I'm trying to point out or uh, mention anyways, or, or, or suggest is that I I think that when you think about these, these, these platforms, um, you have to take into account the fact that, you know, there's this overall macro thing happening in terms of, you know, inflation, but uncertainty of job losses and stuff like that. That's certainly probably the biggest driver of that flat line or down, downward trend. But I think the, maybe the micro factor that you can't um, ignore is the fact that, you know, we saw this back in 2008 too, where, um, you know, there was a lot of change in behavior that, I don't know. It's hard to describe, but it's, you know, like I'm just not spending as much as I used to. And maybe I'm not the core customer anymore. I don't know. But anyway, I, I think this, this, um, this particular sort of topic though, is something I think a lot about lately on, on a lot of the pitches I've been getting for, for new investments where, you know, there's that, there's that sort of like punchy cliche that investors use all the time where they say like, you know, are you a vitamin or a, a painkiller? And I think when mm-hmm. times are really good, you don't really care. You're like, oh, well, how are you going to make money? Da, da, da. You know, and as long as the answer is reasonably good, you invest. But I think now, especially these last couple of months, maybe last couple of quarters, I've been increasingly getting more, uh, I don't know if brutal is the right word, but, you know, like my, my sort of like filter is much higher now of like, 
if things get worse, is, will people still want to buy what this thing is that you sell? Um, anyway, it's a nuanced question. Uh, and I know I'm taking you off topic here, but it, it's interesting to see sort of these like larger public companies talk about this, you know, these trends. Um, and I, I, if I had to bet, I think we're probably talking about another quarter or two of like downward slopes before anything really stabilizes. I mean, those are trailing indicators anyway, right? I think so. Yeah, I really do. I mean, the, you know, the, the folks who, you know, who order delivery for the most part probably aren't quite affected yet. There's some of the folks that were laid off for sure, but we've still got the knock on effects of that. And I think that, you know, to the point of the Shopify layoffs, like I feel, still think we're seeing things work out. There was a a great jobs report that was um, that was released the, the day we're recording uh, Friday, the 5th of August. So, you know, they're, they're still, you know, uh, they're still conflicting indicators of what's really going on. But I, I don't think the I like the core message has changed that, you know, now more than ever, founders really need to be very dialed in to what metrics make them the most money because fundraising is going to continue to be lumpy. Yeah. I, well, actually, before I jump off this, and, and I'm I'm probably coming at you from left field here a little bit, I, you know, a lot of our conversations uh, around layoffs have, have been focused on the tech sector, the Shopify's and, you know, all the tech companies that were listed on layoffs.fyi and stuff like that. Um, you know, and, and I think that's just, you know, because optically you and I are so plugged into the tech world that that's really where our attention goes. But I think it, sure. it, it's worth mentioning that it seems like the, the layoffs are extending into more mainstream, larger companies as well. I mean, I just got a text from a buddy of mine yesterday who works at Oracle and, you know, the text read, uh, I think I, like it literally said, I think I survived the the big layoff, likely 10,000. I mean, again, I don't know if this is real number or not, but he he's saying from the inside that it looks like 10,000 people might have been let go at Oracle this week. Um, and I guess that, again, I'm not trying to be doom and gloom or anything like that, but I think that, you know, for entrepreneurs right. and founders listening to this sort of thing, you know, it, it seems like this, when, when I talk about like that downward trope uh, slope for the next two or three quarters at least, I'm not trying to be doom and gloom. In fact, I'm really just trying to get people to kind of batten down the hatches here. You know, figure out your economics, whether you're raising money or uh, or, or planning to raise money. I mean, you, you got to like, you just got to know that the filters are going to be much higher for everybody now. Um, and, and maybe that's not like, everybody knows that. I, I feel like that's not something people don't know. But looking at some of the pitches I'm getting this week, at least, at least, it seems to me that a lot of people don't know that still, <laughs> you know, newsflash like, alert. If you're sending a, if you're sending a pitch to Paul, I, I know this is like a first world problem, but there was a moment earlier this week where I was like, I think I should just put up a email autoresponder that just says, if you're emailing a deck, here's what it needs to say. <laughs> but, but I, 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 don't know. I, I feel like <laughs> we're in a privileged spot to be able to do that. So, um, anyway, it's it just, you know, one other thing I'll just say about this is like, I do find it interesting just introspectively thinking about this. And I don't know how, how, how you would respond or how you would feel about this, but like, I remember, so when the 2000 recession happened, I was in college. And so I, I was, you know, aware enough to know that people were unhappy or uncomfortable, but I wasn't like exposed enough to it professionally to, to, to understand what it meant for me. 
Mm -hmm. then 10 years later or so in 2008, I was definitely aware of what was going on. And I was, you know, midway through my, my, or I guess late twenties or whatever. And, um, definitely aware of like how this could affect me and really could see it in my bank accounts and my investment accounts and, and all that stuff. And I, I, I'd be lying if I didn't say I was nervous. The uncertainty really, looking back anyways, the uncertainty really caused me to make poor decisions, move a lot slower than I should have and, and, and that sort of thing. But it's interesting now, like in my early 40s, I guess in my third recession now, you know, the uncertainty or the anxiety is sort of just replaced with wanting to protect my downsides. Uh, you know, and I, and I guess what I'm just saying is like, it's just from an introspective standpoint, really interesting to see how you, uh, how experience really um, l l smoothens out that whole, you know, emotional roller coaster that we all face uh, personally and professionally when it comes to these bigger things like this. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Well, we'll see where this goes. I, I, I'm curious. Like I, um, I feel just anecdotally in my neighborhood, I feel like I have not seen as many delivery cars as I used to. But again, that's anecdotal. I don't, I don't know. I mean, somebody should make an app on this or something. <laughs> like, yeah. Count the number yeah. of Domino's cars going down the road or something like that and see what happens. <laughs> So let's, let's let's talk real quickly about um, about beacons because we got a listener question that I want I want to touch on and then and then I want to dig into you know this YC and, and SoftBank stuff but uh, but first from um, from Casey uh, you know, it, it's an interesting question it's not one that I've asked you so I'll be curious to hear the answer uh, Casey asks what was the process you went through to come up with the name Beacon uh, for the new uh, podcast transcription product uh, that you're working on and uh, follow on was uh, and how have you gotten better about this step over the years um, you know so yeah what what's your thoughts there well uh, okay so I uh, so this actually this question actually came from Casey Allen who's a, a good friend and runs a conference amongst other things runs a really great conference in the Midwest called Enterprise Rising and I've I've keynoted at it before and and uh um, anyway, he's a great guy and, and Casey, thanks for the question. So, um, <laughs> look, I, I, it wasn't really rocket science. Uh, I'll give you the short version and then maybe the complete version here. The, the short version was, is when I first, I started building what is now beacon without a name. Uh, in fact, the code repository is just called search podcasts. <laughs> like it's nothing crazy. So when I, when yeah. I started writing the code, I just, in GitHub, you have to create a new, you know, repository name. And so I just called it search podcast because that was the that, way back when I was just trying to understand like what I wanted to make this thing. And so, um, yeah, anyway, internally, it was just, I guess internally sounds weird. The code was just called search podcast because I just wanted to search inside podcasts. And then as I got closer and closer to maybe putting up a website, um, I started thinking about the name and, you know, here's the thing. Okay, first off, in the grand scheme of things, names don't really matter because you can change them. You know, so so like in the grand scheme of things, the name doesn't matter. Just pick something and go with it. But more practically speaking, um, I, I think, you know, so so the way I did it was I just decided on a Friday morning that by, by the time lunchtime came around, I would just pick the least worst name I could come up with because I that could not be the gating <laughs> item for whatever. So... I just, I, um, I use the notes app on my 
Mac just because it syncs with my phone and all that. And so yeah. um, I dropped off the kids at school or uh, yeah, school back then. And um, I just sat down at a coffee shop real quick, set an hour timer. And I was just literally going in my browser. I had my browser open and this notes app open. And what I was doing was actually searching for domain names that were close to it. And so as I thought about it, I was just like, okay, like, what, like, what are names, what are words that are close to the problem I want to solve? And again, I wasn't, I'm not building this for anybody else. I'm, I'm building it for myself and hopefully other people might find it interesting. So for me, I'm like, um, well, I just, I want to know when me or my portfolio companies are mentioned in podcasts. So what does that look like? What are the words? And I could probably go pull up the, the notes app and tell you all the various words, but I just, I was going between a thesaurus right? Like what are words for alerts and this, that, you know, and then I would then tab over to a, a search, you know, to find out if there were any domains available. And then if there were no good domains available, I would just take that off the list and just whittle it, whittle it, whittle it. And so here, here's maybe the contradictory thing I'm going to say in the grand scheme of things, your name, your company, your, your product name doesn't matter because you can change it. But the caveat to that is, is it also can't be a bad name. So like you can't, you can't go from like, I don't know, random X, Y, Z and then survive long. Like you just, the product likely not even be interesting. So anyway, I, I'm not doing a good job of, of articulating this. The point is in the grand scheme of things, the name doesn't matter, but in the, uh, but at the same time, it cannot be bad. And so I just, I'm just a big believer that you should just think about the problem space you're working on pick a word or two, throw that into a thesaurus and then start checking to see what domains are available. And then just set a timer on this thing. Like don't spend more than two or three hours on this thing. Max pick the least worst thing and go with it. And so for example, uh, like I liked the word beacon. Um, it was sort of a play on the word alert. Um, and you know, I started to look at things like pod alerts and all these other things, but I didn't like the way that it just seemed too narrow. And so all the variations of alerts were taken. I think like get alerts and set yeah. alerts and all that stuff. So then like in the thesaurus beacon came up and that was interesting where it was like, Oh, okay, well that's, that's a cool word. And you know, uh, beacon.com was taken the, the singular versions of it were generally all taken. Um, and so I just went with the plural for the URL. Now I, I call the product beacon like singular, uh, but the, but the URL is getbeacons.com. And that's just, I don't know, later on I'll go pay and buy the, the singular domain or whatever. Um, if other, if enough people see this thing and find it useful. Um, but, but I think, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's sort of the gist of it. I just sort of set a timer. W one other thing I should just mention, I, maybe this is like a paranoid thing, but just back from my domain name days, one thing I would recommend you not do is don't search for domains on the websites of domain sellers. Um, now, again, I know I'm yeah. going to sound paranoid here, but it's a pretty well-known thing that some of the places, I won't name names here, but like some of the places, some of the most well-known places where people buy domains are also known for squatting on those domains if they see enough searches on it. So, yes. so what you really want to do is... Uh, like what I do anyways, is I open up a terminal, uh, like a the little command line interface. And then I just type in who is, and most computers already have this installed. So if you just type in W H O I S, who is space, the domain name that you want, 
So just like getbeacons.com or widget.co, whatever. Um, it'll just, if, if no entry comes back, then that domain's available. Generally speaking, if no entry comes back, that domain's available. Um, the second thing I would just say is, is that when at all possible, get the .com. Because I know, by the way, if people are even listening to this segment, somebody's going to tell me, well, you should get the .co, get the .xyz, get the .btc, whatever. Uh, no. Like, I mean, you could, but that's just not a good use of your time. And, and frankly, it doesn't really matter. The, from a traffic standpoint, there's a lot of research out there, a lot of data that shows that for better or for worse, the .com tends to perform better. Um, and most regular users out there aren't going to know what to do, type in anyways. You know, like if it doesn't matter what industry you're in, B2B, B2C, whatever, my mom doesn't trust anything but a dot com. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, in, it's interesting. It's definitely something I would dig in more because I, I know there are very conflicting opinions about it. I still tend to be a dot com guy, but I know there are lots of folks who feel like the actual domain name is less important today than it was, you know, 10 or 15 years ago in terms of what the suffix is. But, you know, I wonder if that's also age-based in terms from a trust standpoint, if us old grizzly folks are the ones that prefer .com. Look, I, I, well, I don't think, I don't disagree with what you're saying there because I don't have any data to, to, to refute it. But here's what I would say. Like, in general, I think people should make an educated guess about or what their customer looks like. And then, and then based on whatever image pops in your head, pick the domain that you think is the most valuable. Or the most um, recognizable. So, so like, and I know maybe I, I sound horrible at this, but like when I first started picking this domain, I figured that the most likely path towards monetization would be selling information to businesses that want to keep an eye on their brand names or competitors or just broadly speaking, I think the customer, like I think Beacon is always going to be free. I think you should be able to search a lot of stuff and whatever. But I think some of the advanced tools are more likely to be paid for by businesses or people that have business intent. So whether it's like a, you know, a company paying to monitor their brand name or it's sales development reps that are paying, you know, uh, a monthly SaaS fee to, to access it. But either way, it's going to be a business credit card on the, on the account. And I think that most businesses are comfortable dealing with dot coms. Uh, more than most other domains. Um, but look, if, for example, if you're starting something in the crypto space or the Web3 space or whatever, your customer's different. They they probably are yeah. more comfortable, you know? Uh, you know, speaking maybe close to your heart, Ed, I would just say like, you know, if somebody were to start a new travel site, I you know, most of your comp your customers are going to be regular people, like people that may not even self you know, describe themselves as technology savvy. And, and so these people probably would trust a dot com more than your cool flight tool dot XYZ. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 the ironic part of this is I've probably spent more time talking about this than actually when I picked the name, but you know, this is also an interesting discussion, by the way, because I think it's even harder. Like, I feel bad for, I shouldn't say I feel bad. I can't even imagine what it's going to be like for entrepreneurs and other people a decade from now. Like, a lot of the, remember, you remember, like, I don't know if you remember, but you probably do, but 
<laughs> way back in the wild west of the internet 20 years ago, you know, you could buy like a four, five, six, or even seven letter domain, you know, and, but then the squatters and the domain yeah. flippers came in and, and then all of them went away. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So it's gotten harder, you know, like, and, that, and anyway, names are hard, but uh, I don't know. It, it's really about threading this needle though, because you can change the name at any time. Um, you know, but, but like you also can't afford to have a really bad name, uh, at the beginning either. Um, we used to say something like this at 500, by, by the way, where we would say like design doesn't like design matters a lot more than people realize, because as the internet gets more full of stuff, uh, you know, good design does separate, um, you from everybody else. So same thing here, like as more and more domains are out there, more and more products are out there. You don't need to have the perfect name, but you just can't have a bad one. Let's, uh, let's dig a little bit into the YC and SoftBank stuff that we talked through. Um, and, and I'm going to frame these up separately, but I, I do think that they're related um, in, in a lot of ways. So first uh, is uh, reports that Y Combinator, one of the really big accelerators out there, uh, has uh, decreased the size of their most recent cohort of companies. Um, so they were they were up almost to 400 companies um, in the one of the most recent classes, and they've dropped that number to 250 in um, in this most recent class, which is still a whole lot of companies. But but I mean, definitely a big significant decrease for them. Um, and that's also amidst the fact that they've raised the starting check size that they that they hand out to companies that make it through um, their their selection process. At, at the same time, um, I, I sent you some numbers earlier, which I think um, are a little bit flabbergasting, but I think also have a dramatic impact um, when we talk about startups and early stage investing. Um, SoftBank, who's a much more of a late stage investor, um, you know, has been having some real struggles, and they've talked about how one of their most recent funds is is potentially in some big trouble. And, you know, looking at the numbers, the one of the things that was quoted in their one of their filings was that they've um, they've invested thirty eight billion dollars last year in one hundred and eighty three companies. So that's roughly two hundred seventy five million dollars a company. Um, but at any rate, like one hundred and eighty three companies at that late stage that they're operating in is a pretty big part of that ecosystem. and And so I do think, you know, I do think there's a connection here between the, some of the reasons why YC may want to reduce the number of companies that they're involved with right now in terms of being able to get funding and the pressure that founders may start to see if the soft banks and the tigers of the world aren't actively pushing unicorns and decacorns across the finish line and what that effect is, you know, further down through the fundraising stack. Okay, for... <laughs> First of all, like, I don't mean to make fun of this, but it makes me visibly uncomfortable to think about losing that amount of money. <laughs> like, <laughs> what does that conversation even look like? You know, somebody walks into SoftBank and says like, hey, boss, listen, don't be mad. Okay. But a thing happened. Okay. It's, it's going to be okay. But we lost a lot of money, <laughs> like $38 billion. We just lost it. Um, what, is that, what does that conversation even look like? I mean, I can't even... I can't even imagine, but okay. But, but that being said though, uh, I would, I would say two things actually. The first is 
I think it's Y Combinator is really fascinating to me because, you know, they're at least my experience with them over the you know last decade or more or whatever has been that they're probably some of the most optimistic people you'll ever meet. Uh, you know, they're they're not like yeah. they're not like crazy optimistic, like they're not like whatever, but but like they're they have this like incredible optimism and when you combine that with their like you know, aggression or you know, their ambition it's it's really it's something special to see and to see them sort of take a step back I, I, that that to me is more mentally jarring is like when when the people that you know to be extremely optimistic and ambitious and aggressive about growth scale back that that's like a big that it, it makes you take pause you know and i don't know what what's what they're discussing behind their closed doors but you know, we're going to make some guesses here together. The, the second thing I would just say is this whole late stage investor area, I, I don't know, it just feels really weird to me. You know, I, I love the early stage parts of companies, you know, uh, let's call it seed to series E or something. I don't know if that's early, but you know, but then there's this like, it seems like over the last five years when times are really good, this new sort of like you know, slice of venture capital, basically it's private equity veiled as private, as venture capital has come in pre IPO and they're dumping these massive amounts of money in. And it's just, I don't know. It's just almost like, I mean, I know financially why they're doing it, right? They're looking for yield and they want to get in before the IPO. I sure. get that. That's rational. But at the same time, it begs the question of like, what, what were you thinking? You know, like, so let's just, so, uh, two, what is it, 183 companies with $38 billion. And so it averages out and averages, maybe not be the, as we all know, averages don't tell you the whole story, but it averages out. So $275 million a company. So that sort of uh, implies that we're talking about, I would think multi-billion dollar valuations on a bunch of these companies. And like, where did they think it was going to go? <laughs> like, like, I, again, maybe I'm not qualified to even operate at those levels and that's why I don't understand it. But, you know, it just, I don't know. Like, it, it's just, it's hard to to gather. I mean, I guess maybe this is also like a reflection of the fact that, you know, the older I get, the less interested I am in sort of late stage companies. And any of the founders I've been dealing with lately have can probably corroborate this, but, I, you know, Ironically, a lot of my advice to them these days is like, you know, hey, look, if you're going to go raise this money, please treat it like it's your last one. And, 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 and it's weird for investors to say that, right? Because we all do, we all look for markups on our money. We want you to raise more money. We, it, it, that's how we can kind of increase our paper value of the money before you exit. But like the older I get, the more I'm like, look, don't, don't go. Yes, this is going to be a 12 to 18 month runway for you. Uh, and yes, you should be thinking about the milestones you need to hit over that time if you want to raise more money. But the real goal should be to take this 12 or 18 months of runway and really ask yourself, what are the milestones we need to hit to never have to raise money again? Because those are two very different things, right? The milestones you have to hit to raise your next round of funding are very different than the milestones you have to hit to never again raise money. And I think that's an important conversation that founders should be having today, particularly because of the, the, the uncertainty of the next few quarters. Um, and so back to the whole Y Combinator thing. I don't know, from the outside, it certainly seems like 
one one of the more likely reasons why they're scaling back is because this is maybe their implied announcement that later stage funding is going to dry up. Maybe that's what it is. I, I'm curious what you think. I think that's certainly some of it, but um, I think it's, I, I certainly think they believe that there's going to be less funding. Uh, whether whether they believe that, you know, the big numbers that they had in recent cohorts was too many and they, they pulled it back because it was unwieldy. Like, I don't know that we'll ever truly know that answer, but I, I want to go back to something that you said because I think it's a really important point. And it's something that's really, you know, since since we got back into, uh, you know, investing, call it 2008, 2009, somewhere in there, it, it's always, I've always struggled with how much con- companies uh, focus on on growth at the uh, growth at all costs, um, definitely at the expense of profitability and sustainability. And I think you 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 said something in a in a very interesting way, and I want to I want to double click on it. You said, you know, raise, you know, make this next raise, um, you know, something that allows you to get to the point where you don't have to raise again. And I think the double click there is. It doesn't mean that these companies won't raise again. It means it'll be their choice. And I think that that's a very key point of, hey, you know, we have a company in our portfolio right now. It's going through this. They have some large contracts. They have some revenue coming in. They could continue to grow organically, but they see opportunities to take market share in in, a, in an uncertain economic time. And they're willing to take that bet um, versus all these company, companies that, that don't have that option, they have to raise, they don't have a choice, like their burn is just too big. And I think you bring up a really good point of just how much control a founder would have if when you know 12 to 18 months rolled around, they still had enough money in the bank to do all the stuff they wanted to do. Um, you know, It just gives them so much more flexibility. They're not tied to any one investor at that point. Somebody gives them crappy terms, they can, they can, go, they can go to somebody else. They can wait it out. Um, all these things that are are very tough or have been very tough to do over the past 10 years because all of us as investors knew these folks had to raise again. That begs the question of, oh, well, let me let me step back. First off, I again, I realize I'm only one data point and I can only see my own subset of, of the world, right? So I, I'll, I'll admit that before I say this next thing or ask this next thing, which is, I'm curious why this is. Like, why is this conversation not happening? Like, you know, um, I was talking to a founder, so there's a founder I was talking to earlier this week who um, I don't think they're ready to raise money yet, but but we were chatting about his company and and I, I posed this question to him. So, you know, he, on his pitch and his deck, you know, he had this sort of uh, use of funds slide and we started talking about what mm-hmm. the next 12 or 18 months look like. And, and, you know, on that slide, he said something like, and here are the milestones we intend to achieve to raise our next round or whatever. And so I, I sort of threw this question at him and I said, well, look, what if that's not the question? What if the, what what is the what are the milestones we have to achieve to not have to raise money? You know, eighteen months from now. And he knew the answer, at least for his company. He well, I shouldn't say he knew the answer. Right. He had strong opinions. He was like, "Well, this is what we would have to do." And I said, "Well, why isn't that on there uh, instead of what you've got here?" And he's like, "Well, um, we've been told by by the VCs that we don't they don't." They don't, they want to see what it's going to take to get the next round. And so like maybe the question I'm trying to pose to you is, is like, how do we, how do we force more of this conversation to happen? Like, I don't know if, I don't know if there is an answer to this, by the way, but like, 
this conversation does not seem to, to me anyways, this conversation of like what needs to happen for you to never have to raise money again is not happening very often. Um, no. And I'm curious. Like, that's not new. Like that's the way, what, that's the way it's been for, yeah, but that's the way it's been for forever. Oh, I agree with that. I totally agree with that. Um, in fact, I was probably, <laughs> I mean, I hate to admit it, but I was probably, you know, one of those people that told them not to think about that either. You know, uh, a decade ago when I was I'm investing sure, yeah. other people's money and I was in a different part of my life, a little younger, you know, that sort of thing. But I don't know, I, like the older I get, the more I want founders to keep control of their company, um, you know, uh, and, and so I don't know, like I, I know with the, the conversations I've been happening, having more often, you know, over these last couple of days and weeks, I've been posing this question and, and maybe my challenge to anybody listening to this now is, you know, whether you're on the entrepreneur side or the investor side or whatever side you're on, I think this question should be posed more often, you know, and, and not because the founder has to go this path, but to, to what you just said there, I don't know a single founder that would turn down the idea of having optionality, but yet they don't behave that way. You know, the reason I call it the venture treadmill for better or for worse is because like how everybody behaves for better or for worse is like you get on that venture treadmill and you got to run faster and faster and faster for other people. And then there's only two ways off that venture treadmill. Like you either fall off the back of it as you run out of money or you jump off the front of it because you played the game really well, raised enough money to keep growing as fast as you could. And then you sell the company and you might only own like 10% of it or 20% of it. That's not a bad right. thing. I mean, that you still made money. I'm just saying I think more people should talk, or at least, uh, um, you know, consider that there's a third option that you could, you know, uh, using this metaphor one step further, is like you could choose to get on the venture treadmill because maybe you have to start that way. I respect that. But uh, maybe you behave as if you're going to stop the treadmill at some point. Um, and it's probably not going to be a comfortable conversation with institutional investors, right? Uh, you no. know, venture investors are not going to like that at all. Right. Uh, many are not. Yeah, many are not. Right. Uh, but I think angels will at least be open to it. Because again, you can, uh, you can choose to go back to high growth when money's good or when money's flowing if you really want to. Uh, but having that optionality, that, that is really powerful, but not enough people actually, uh, you know, take advantage of it. Um, you know, totally random. I've had a surprising number of people email me about investing in Beacon. Uh, interesting. And I'm really thankful for it, but like, it makes me nervous because I don't like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to step on that treadmill. I'd rather let customers finance it. Um, and again, I, I, I'm not, I, you know, I'm not saying like everybody should do it that way, but optionality is great. You know, for as long as you can sustain it, optionality is great. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I don't blame you for sure. Um, but I'll be interested to see, you know, where it goes. Cause we're still, as you know, I talked about very early on in terms of you figuring out where, where you're going to be from a monetization standpoint with, um, with beacons. And I think, you know, to your point on this ecosystem and, and what's changing now with, you know, the potential of the soft banks and the tigers sort of, you know, taking a backseat, if you will, or changing their their model and the YCs of the world, um, you know, incubating less companies. Um, you know, I mean, it, it's 
I, I'm not going to be as presumptuous to say that we're going to see a sea change in the attitudes because we're still talking about a whole lot of people in the VC space who are investing other people's money and they only get paid when they invest that money. So um, there's still this there's still this desire and need to get that money out there to earn interest on it. Um, and especially with, you know, if if it happens, as was seemingly announced last night, the carried interest provision goes away or the, 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 the potential changes to it goes away. Like there's still a lot of money to be made in the carried interest world. So if you follow the money, the people that put the money into the space are still incentivized to write the check. Yeah. Um, but maybe founders are going to be less likely to want to take it or they're going to, or they're going to hold out for better terms because of how things are changing. I don't know. That's my, my bet is the founders that are the, the most successful over the next 12 to 18 months will be the ones that are thoughtful and they will be the ones that have put themselves in a the position where they don't have to take the first term sheet they get. It's interesting though, right? It's like the more, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm just saying cliches just the same now, but it's like the more things change, the more they're the same. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, look, I, I think, I hope more founders embrace optionality and I hope more investors, at least angel investors, force the conversation of what do the milestones need to be if we never have to raise money again? at least have the conversation, even if we're not going to behave that way. Yeah, I agree. Anyway, we'll, we'll kind of see where this kind of, where this goes um, over the next couple of weeks. And I'm curious if anybody's still listening at this point, it's like, you know, if this kind of conversation really interests you, I'm curious what you think, you know, what, like, wh why aren't these conversations happening more often? And maybe more pointedly, what, what can or should we be doing to, to, you know, make this more of a conversation between angels and, and founders? Uh, going forward. I don't know. I think the results of that would be really I hope they're still listening. <laughs> I hope they're still listening. <laughs> yeah, that or we're wasting our time. No, I don't think we're wasting our time. I, look, here's the thing. I would still, look, you and I talk about this stuff all the time. I would keep talking about this stuff anyways. We've been talking about this stuff for years now anyways. And the only difference now is we hit a record button. So I'll keep talking about this stuff with you <laughs> regardless of anybody's listening. And I think that's what I enjoy about it. And I think at least from the people that have emailed me, I think that's what they enjoy about it too. So Anyway, yeah. all that being said, you know, uh, uh, I hope people just, if there's more stuff you guys want to hear us talk about, I hope you'll email us, show at resultschunkies.com or, you know, hit either of us on social media and we'll, we'll get it out here. But yeah, we do these calls every week anyway. So <laughs> might as well talk about what you guys want to talk about <laughs> when we hit the record button. Well, I think that's a good place to put a pin in it, man. There's so much to, to look at and so many tea leaves to read, but um but yeah, I, and I'll say, you know, we didn't talk about it much, but I, I finally got my first opportunity to dig into beacons. And I know you're I know you're working on some stuff. Um, so we'll, we'll probably dig into this more in future episodes. But I'm I'm eager to see more now that I can get logged in. I'll, I'll just leave it there. All right. Well, I will. I will just tell you I'm embarrassed with what you can see because it still looks so bad and all that. But, um, you know, I'm. <laughs> uh, it's getting better. Um, the the new engines are running. Uh, they've been running for a couple of days now, um, and now I'm just sort of tying it all to that front end. And I got a couple of new design updates that are going to go out as over the next couple of days. So, yeah, we'll talk more about this on next week's episode. But you know, the larger the data set gets, the not only does it is is the are the trending topics getting more interesting, but also like. It, it, the more I'm sort of discovering really weird things that some of the larger publishers are doing. And so uh, we'll see. I'll, I'll talk more about that maybe on the next episode. It'll be fun. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks for uh, the gab, man. All right, Good buddy. Well, have a great weekend. Hope uh, hope is all is well with the family. <laughs>